0: In the wake of World War II, it seems our culture has become somewhat infatuated with the idea of predicting the end of the world. Certainly, Hollywood likes to do that, but there are other manifestations of it as well. Whether it was that book, The Population Bomb, which said disaster was coming in the 1980s, or climate alarmists who say, we only have a few years to save the polar ice, ice caps, and then you know everything's going to flood over. There's always someone putting a countdown out there to the end of humanity, in 1947, some researchers developed what is known as the doomsday clock. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It, 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 what, what it's meant to do is represent the likelihood of a man-made global catastrophe. And the idea is that they say when the clock strikes midnight, you know, It's all over for mankind. And then the researchers look at things that are going on with geopolitics and nuclear threats and other sorts of things, and they tell you what time it is. And right now, do you guys know what time it is? 11.58. Dun, dun, dun. we only got two minutes left. I'll make my study quick. (laughs) The truth is, there is an end coming. It will arrive according to a very definite timetable. God's got a clock that he's working off of. We've got to look at, it as, look at it as we study through the book of Daniel. It is God in heaven who sets the clock of history, and we learn from David in Psalm 37 that God is diligently watching that clock as well. You've probably heard the theory out there, maybe an intro to philosophy course or something, about God being a clockmaker. That, yes, there's a God and he created the universe, but like a clockmaker, he simply made the machine, wound it up, and then walked away. He's not involved in the universe, so the theory goes. Of course, this is not only contrary to what the Bible says, but it's clearly contrary to the witness of history as well. Now, God is the clockmaker in that he made all things, but he's also a clock watcher, and he is intricately involved in this universe moment by moment. And here in Psalm 37, David depicts the Lord as carefully watching the clock of history, counting down the days to the end, when the wicked will be repaid for their evil and the children of God will be lavishly rewarded according to the riches of his grace. As we saw last time here in Psalm 37, David is an old man. He has a lot of wisdom to share with us about life and godliness and peace and perspective. This is a wisdom psalm. It's how it's categorized. And throughout the text, we're reminded again and again of the kingly reward that is coming for God's people, their inheritance at the end of the age. And so we jump in at verse 10 tonight, where we read this. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. There's really no greater contrast that you can think of than the one depicted in the psalm. You have the delights of the righteous that are lasting forevermore with the Lord versus the destruction of the wicked. Now, in movies like An Inconvenient Truth or they make predictions about the end of humanity, those predictions often end up being proven to not really be true, right? Or at least they were sort of sensationalized versions of predictions. The ice caps didn't melt in 2016, as the movie suggested. The movie suggested there would be no snow on Mount Kilimanjaro. And now when people look back, they chalk it up to what they call literary license. We would just say, well, no, people were just wrong. But it sort of chalked up that the predictions of, of man's extinction are just not quite true in those regards. But when God says that judgment is going to fall and that the wicked are going to be no more, it's not hyperbole. It's a certain future for those who reject Jesus Christ. There are no second chances, unfortunately. There's no work release program in purgatory. Each individual has a life to live here on the earth and a choice to make concerning Jesus the Messiah. And when they die, then comes judgment for those who will not receive God's free gift of salvation. Our sins can be judged at the end of our lives or they can be judged at the cross. So that's, it's a binary choice, one or the other. And it is a sure thing that for those who reject Jesus Christ, uh, they will be judged and they will be uh, sent to hell for all eternity. The wicked of this world, they seem to hold a lot of cards today. If we look around and if you watch the news, it's hard not to think, man, bad people hold a lot of the cards. They seem to have their run of the place, right? But you know, in the end, they're going to be dealt with. There's not even gonna be a place for them. I think it's interesting that David points that out. He says, hey, you won't find the wicked and there's no place for them either. There will be no underground black market in heaven, no rebel dissidents hiding in the hills doing weird, shady stuff. Sin and evil are going to be completely eradicated altogether, like smallpox. Even better than smallpox, because smallpox still exists in two labs. Did you know that? One's in Georgia and one's in Russia. I feel like both of those locations are bad. Why do we have smallpox in labs? Can we just get rid of both of those? But So other than that, there's no natural occurring you know, existence of smallpox on the world today. It's eradicated. And that's what's going to happen to sin and happen to death at the end of this age. God is going to eradicate those things. They're going to be gone forever. Verse 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. What an amazing promise it is to hear to hear that it is those who are meek who will rule with the Lord. That's not a human way of organizing things. Think about David's time, especially. Think about the man, David, writing this psalm, writing this phrase. He's toward the end of his life, the life that he's had. He's a poet. He was a king. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel, a shepherd and all of that. But I mean, he was a warrior, the giant slayer, right? I mean, he was a man who conquered. And in his time, especially, how were kingdoms formed? Kingdoms were only formed through might and bloodshed and a constant flexing of muscle and fighting off foes and those sorts of things. But God, he does things completely differently than man does them. And even David here is saying, yeah, God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the New Testament says. Uh, There's a great phrase that is used, it's called God's upside-down kingdom doesn't do things the way that mankind does them. It's the meek that will inherit the earth. The largest non-government landowner in the world is, anybody know? The largest non-government landowner in the world is the Catholic Church. The estimated land held by the Pope is about 177 million acres. It's a little more than the state of Texas. Now, I guess the Catholic Church is kind of a government... So the the private individual who owns the most land on planet Earth these days is an Australian mining magnate named Gina Reinhart. She owns more than 46,000 square miles of land in Australia. That's about the size of Mississippi. She owns it all. Now, that all sounds like a lot, right? I don't want to mow the lawn on all of Mississippi. That sounds like a lot, but you and I are going to inherit the whole Earth. Think about that for a minute. It says, yeah, you are going to inherit the earth, all of it. Right now, there are about 197 million square miles of land around the globe. We know that when Jesus returns, there's gonna be changes in in the geology and the geography a little bit, and so, but let's call it 197 million square miles of land, and it's gonna be given to you. It's gonna be given to us, to God's people, and it will be given to us in a state that is restored and renewed and filled with the glory of God. No property taxes, that's good. Uh, No off-limit sites, it's all ours, Sometimes we like to you know, go on nature day with the kids or with some of the homeschool families and you know, go out on a little trail or whatever, maybe it's three rivers, and you always come across some sort of fence, some sort of barbed wire. Hey, you can't cross this line. If you do, we're going to shoot you right in the face, you know, those kind of signs that you see, and nothing like that in the kingdom. You're going to inherit the entire earth, and David goes to great lengths to say it again and again and again in the psalm. Here in verse 11, we have the second of five times that David will tell us that God's people are going to inherit the earth. Now, if you have the New King James Bible, which is what we're reading out of, three times it says inherit the earth, and twice it says inherit the land, but the Hebrew word's the same. He just keeps saying over and over again in these verses, God's people are gonna inherit the earth. God's people are gonna inherit the earth. You're going to inherit the earth. And that is a remarkable, wonderful thing. Our inheritance is a sure promise. As part of that inheritance, we're told that we will enjoy an abundance of peace. Now, in the Bible, peace means much more than just an absence of war or an absence of strife or conflict. It expresses completeness and wholeness, harmony, fulfillment, an unimpaired relationship with others. That sounds pretty good. And we're going to delight in that in our inheritance We have quite a future to look forward to, but, you know, we don't have to wait to start enjoying the peace of God. Remember in the New Testament how often, especially in the epistles, grace and peace are extended to us by the New Testament letters, over and over again, Paul especially, grace and peace to you, grace and peace to you. That's a real offer. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, spoke to us so that we might have peace. Now to guard our hearts and our minds, he said... And along with experiencing God's peace for ourselves, that peace which passes understanding, we are commanded to go out and live at peace with others as much as possible. The book of Hebrews says, hey, go live in peace. And this is the peace that it's talking about. It doesn't just mean don't go to war with your neighbor. It says, hey, live in peace. Live in harmony with the people around you as as far as it depends on you, and enjoy the peace of God. That's not something that's just waiting for us on the other side of eternity. That is something that is available to us in some measure right now. Now, the land inheritance of verse 11 and the rest of this psalm, that may be far off in the future. If you see the no trespassing sign, don't cross over. It's not yours yet. But we can dip into the reservoirs of God's peace today in our personal experience with him, through our struggles, and in our relationships with others. Jesus says so in the New Testament. He says, hey, I've given you peace. And I'm the prince of peace. It's mine to give. And now I'm sending you out to not only enjoy that peace, but to live at peace with others. And you know what? By the time we get into the kingdom, it's gonna be completely delightful, completely perfected. It's gonna be over and abundant. And so we don't experience God's peace perfectly right now in our sort of mortal humanity, but it is available to us. Verse 12 says, the wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. We hear that phrase gnashing teeth and it makes us think of how it's used in the New Testament. A very sad characteristic of hell is that it will be a place where men gnash their teeth in agony. You know, the Bible is pretty clear that you are gonna reap what you sow. Uh, Those who embrace wickedness and take delight in gnashing their teeth toward the innocent are going to sadly reap a harvest of judgment, gnashing their teeth for all eternity. Uh, That's a sad thing. Verse 13, the Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. You know, our God is not a toothless figurehead. He's a furious warrior when it comes to protecting his people. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about knowing the terror of the Lord, Though God does not delight in the death of the wicked, in the end, he will cut them down. Their plans and their efforts mean nothing when facing his ultimate wrath. In the end, when the Lord comes at the wicked with the full force of his judgment and his fury uh, pours out on them, it is justified. Look at verse 14. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. Injustice is not an insignificant thing to God. It's not a small thing to him. He cares very much about it. It's a big deal. From heaven's perspective, injustice and persecution and oppression and resistance against God's people, that's not just like, ah, that was like a practical joke the, the unbelievers were pulling on people. That's just kind of a rude prank that they're doing. No, God looks down from heaven and says, hey, those acts are murderous acts of hatred. And if you're not a Christian, you're a member of the people that are being talked about in verse 14. That's just the deal. Now, maybe you find yourself thinking, well, wait a minute. I'm not trying to kill anybody who's, you know, poor and needy. Or most of us are Christians here, I'm sure, tonight. Maybe you're thinking, you know, not every non-Christian is described in verse 14. I have plenty of friendly, non-believing friends. Sure. Sure. Not every non-believer is a God-hating atheist or someone who goes out to persecute Christians, to be sure. But there are only two kingdoms or two camps that a person can be a part of. You can belong to Christ or you can belong to this rule and by fault its ruler, the devil. There is a real personal devil and he is a savage adversary of God's people and his goal is to kill and destroy and to tear down. And we're told in the Bible it's explained to us that he holds unbelievers captive to do his will whether they signed up for the fight or not. And so uh, even though we don't say, well, every non-believer is out to get all Christians or to kill them or to hurt them, we know that that's not the case. However, the truth is every non-believer is enslaved to sin, is held captive by the devil, and can be used to accomplish his will. And even if they are not sort of enemy combatants in the fight of persecution at the moment. They're still in that army. When you're a kid, if you grew up in the church, you used to sing that song, I'm in the Lord's army. Yeah, there are two armies. There are two hosts, the host of the Lord and the host of wickedness, right? And so that's what's being described here. Now, on the flip side, these enemies of ours who are drawing the sword and bending the bow— They may be at war with God and with us by extension. They may be oppressors and persecutors and and full of murderous hatred toward us. But in the church age, these are people that we are sent out to go and rescue. God says, see that guy over there? You know, the one behind the tree that's pointing his arrow at you. Can you go out there and show love to him and and try to rescue him from certain damnation? Because that would be great because that's the Lord's heart, because he loves those enemy combatants. And just as he loved us and reached out to us and went to great lengths to send the gospel to us, he also sends us to go out and be on that rescue mission for others as well. We are sent to reconcile these people. Verse 14, we are sent to reconcile these people with God and save them from the certain coming destruction. PUBG and Fortnite are wildly popular video games right now. If you're not familiar with them, the premise is sort of simple. You're a character and you're dropped onto a map and usually there's you know, maybe 100 people who are all playing all on their computer, on their phone or whatever. You're all dropped onto a map and you run around and you battle it out with everybody until there's only one person left standing or one team left standing. Now, as the fight goes on, there's a shrinking circle on the map. okay, And outside that circle is like a blue zone. And if you stay in the blue zone, you die. That's how they get the game to progress. And so uh, if you have never heard about this, these are very popular games right now. But it's kind of interesting. The Christian life is incredibly counterintuitive. In the Bible, we learn that out in the world, there are enemies, held captive by the devil to do his will. And his will is to devour and to destroy whoever he can, especially the people of God. Now, these enemies are not going to be victorious in the end. You're going to win the round in the end because of what Jesus Christ has done. He's already won the victory. But now the Lord sends us out not to fight against those people, but he says, hey, go out into the shrinking blue zone of this world and go rescue the people... Who, whose mission it is is to wipe you out because of their father, the devil, who's holding them captive to their will. You understand what I'm saying? So they're out there. They may not realize that they're held captive by the devil, but the Bible declares that they are. And Jesus says, you know what you're going to do? You're going to run into danger. You're going to run toward the enemy and show them love and show them help and get them into the place where they can be saved and where they can find victory just like you have. That's what the Lord has done. He sends us out into that blue zone, in a sense, to rescue those people who are actively warring against God. It's an amazing grace that God pours out to and through us. Verse 15, "'Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken.'" When we hear news of convicted criminals receiving light sentences, it really upsets us. I was gonna try to give an actual example from the news, but they were all horrifying and depressing. Uh, Just the things that people, you know, recently that were in the news that they did, they were convicted, and then the judge said, no jail time. Just don't do that again. You know, and that's a shocking injustice to us when we hear about those sorts of things. It upsets us. In the courtroom of eternity, all punishments are fair. They are valid. They are just. The guilty receive what is due them. But it's a reminder to us that we too deserve death. Everybody in here deserves death because of sin. Uh, But Jesus Christ paid our penalty at the cross so that we might be saved. We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt that uh, he did not owe, so that we could be saved and reconciled to Him. Verse fifteen also echoes what Jesus would say later in Matthew twenty-six: "Those who live by the sword will die by the sword." We want to take these messages to heart. Verse sixteen: "A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked." God talks a big game when it comes to His rewards and His gifts, but you know it's not just hype; it's not just spin. His promises and his provisions are expansive. They are lavish. When he rewards you, I mean, he does so many times over. He's going to give his people the whole earth. He's going to give the church the New Jerusalem. I mean, he's going to just uh, pour out splendor and and glory and reward on us for little things that we do here on the earth that seem so uh, inconsequential at the time. He's going to say, "Wow." Let me reward you for that simple act with like gold and silver and precious stones. That's how it's depicted in the New Testament. In 2011, a Minnesota waitress received what was possibly the world's largest cash tip for a meal. It was $12,000 in cash. She was taken aback. She tried to return it to the customer. customer wouldn't allow it. So she thought, well, maybe something hinky's going on. And so she took it to the police and turned it in. And he said, hey, well, we'll hold it for 60 days and see what's up, if there's any claim or anything like that. And after 60 days, it was hers for the keeping. That's a remarkable reward for serving bacon and eggs, right? 12 grand, wow, that's amazing. But the Bible tells that as we serve the Lord, as we do the work of a sower, he will reward us. And he says, hey, I'm gonna produce a harvest in your life, 30, 60, even 100 times as much as has been planted, That's the kind of lavishness and extravagance of our God. That's the kind of reward he loves to give out. He's a generous tipper in that sense, Uh, and he's just so good to us. Matthew 19 says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life life. And so believe God, believe the promises that he's made to you, and we can leave envy behind. That's what we talked about in the first nine verses of this psalm, leaving envy behind. We don't need to pine for the dollars and cents of the wicked when we've got eternal gold, silver, and precious stones waiting for us in heaven. Verse 17, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Again, we see God as a fierce protector of his people. He not only protects, but he upholds. The term there can be defined this way, to sustain, support, to give whatever is necessary. It's difficult for us to think outside of the physical, temporal life, but God promises to supply whatever is necessary for you to endure and be effective and to continue developing into the masterpiece that he's making you to be. He will uphold you. He will glorify himself through you, not just ultimately in heaven, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit today. This is what God promises to do. Verse 18 The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. So he's not just watching the clock on the wicked, he's watching the clock on our lives as well. Uh, He's counting down the moments until he can deliver us into that inheritance he's prepared for us. What did Jesus say? He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And now David here is, is depicting God as just watching, watching the clock tick down Oh man, wait till they see this. Wait till I free them from, you know, sin and sickness and suffering once and for all and they're brought into glory to receive all of the great things that I want to pour out and give to them. Uh, he's, he's waiting with bated breath, we could say, just excited to be with us and to be face-to-face with us and to give us all he wants to give. He loves to give. He's excited about spending eternity with us. He's planned out our forever with him. Did you know that there's a, a measure of, of what we would call time in eternity? It's kind of hard for us to try to wrap our minds around that, but we're told in Revelation 22 that there's a tree of life, right? Right? And that tree of life bears its fruit, it says, every month. So apparently, we're going to be logging days and months in heaven. Why? Well, I think it's because God wants to keep clocking the days of our delight. He's looking forward to that moment when we're face to face with him. Maybe he'll celebrate anniversaries, right? Why do you celebrate an anniversary with your spouse? Because you want to celebrate, man, we have been together for a whole year. We've been together for 10 years. We've been together for 50 years. It's a wonderful thing to think back in all that time and all of those days, all of those months. And the Lord is the author of love, right? And so it says in Revelation 22, we're logging months in heaven, even though we'll be in eternity. Verse 19, they shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. The upright are those who have been made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. They will not be disgraced. They will not bear their guilt because of what the Lord has done for them. If you're a Christian, your guilt has been dealt with at the cross. Once and for all, it's done. No last minute disqualifications that are gonna sneak up on you. I was reading an article the other day that talked about how it's somewhat commonplace for some companies now to have a very long, drawn-out hiring process. One of the ones they described was the screening interview, then the phone interview, then the first interview, second interview, third interview, then a meal interview, and then the final interview for one position, right? But when it comes to salvation, the cross is the decider, in or out. If you're a Christian, your sin is dealt with, it's done, No final entrance exam at the pearly gates, despite what all the comedians like to talk about, right? Now, what about this promise in the back half of the verse, that in the days of famine, the upright will be satisfied? What are we to make of that promise? Well, it obviously can't be talking about the kingdom or eternity in heaven. There's no scarcity, no famine then. Does the Bible promise that God's people won't go hungry? We know that isn't the case biblically. We know it isn't the case historically. So how do we respond here? Do we just kind of think, well, let's not think about that and move on to verse 20? Well, first of all, David writes this psalm from a different context and more importantly, a different covenant than we're under. God had made real physical promises to Israel about things like wealth and supply and harvest and success and all of that if they remained faithful to him. But when we look around today, we see that Christians do suffer immensely in many parts of the world. Some of them are starving. A recent report has concluded that persecution against Christians worldwide is at near genocide levels at some parts of the planet. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, even now we go hungry and thirsty. We don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and are homeless. And so what should be said about this Promise in verse 19 and other similar ones that we come across. Well, we remind ourselves that we are to put our faith in the spiritual things that God is talking about. We don't put our faith in temporal supplies, in temporal responses. Paul articulated how that we can be sure God will supply our spiritual needs no matter what state we're in. He says, hey, whether I'm hungry or I'm full, whether I'm abounding or I'm suffering, He says, the grace of God is enough. It's enough to uphold me. It's enough to supply me. It's enough to satisfy me. He says, I can be content. I can be in a state of spiritual peace with God and with those around me, whether my belly is full or empty. And so that is the New Testament context of these sorts of promises. And so the grace of God is enough to uphold us and to deliver us through the plan he's carved out for our lives. The source of Christian satisfaction is not found on a plate, it's not found in a bank account, it's found in a relationship with the living God. And as we see in Psalm 37, he is a God who sees, he is a God who cares, he is a God who moves on behalf of his children. He is very much aware of the hunger and the thirst and the suffering of his people, and he is doing things about it. Some of those things he is doing in the observable here and now, and some of those things will be accomplished at the end of the era. Verse 20, but the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. Before we move away from verse 19 here, because I think it's important, just one more thing. Notice we recognize that verse 20 is also making a promise. It's a promise about the wicked, but we recognize that it's not an immediate promise, right? So you read verse 20 and you say, okay, well, that's not happening immediately. This is something that has a long conclusion that God is working out through time, right? And so we accept that the promises of verse 19 for us, the church, they are not necessarily going to be immediate either, Now, the Bible speaks a lot about the briefness of life, as we see here in verse 20, that it's just a vapor, a puff of smoke. God wants us to keep this mindset, apparently, because the Bible talks a lot about it. It's talked about in the Old Testament, it's talked about in the New Testament. Knowing how short this life is, but how significant our lives should be and can be because of the power of God. Passages like this one remind us to be keeping our mind's eye on heaven's clock and thinking through life, not on the temporal level, but on the eternal level and behaving accordingly. You don't need to keep your mind or your eye on the doomsday clock or worry about the book, the population bomb. God's watching the clock that he has set, and we can be sure and secure that he will have his way. Tuesday, March 9th, 2062. That's the day the internet death clock has told me I'm going to die. Do you know about the internet death clock? You go in there, you answer like two questions. They say, this is the day. So mine is Tuesday, March 9th, 2062. I guess I don't have to go jogging after all. That's what I'm excited about. It's yet just another one of those silly clocks that our culture has produced, like the doomsday clock or one of these other things. Now, I' obviously have no uh, concern or uh, issue thinking that that could be a real prediction. But no matter what the day my, no matter what day it is that my life on this Earth ends and my life in heaven begins, for me and for you other Christians here tonight, all that day will be is the death of death and the death of sin, and the death of suffering and of struggle for us. That day is not the end of our lives. That day is the beginning of our forever life of Christ, the kind of life that David is describing here, where we receive our inheritance, a lavish, incredible, extravagant, mind-blowing inheritance where we will inherit the earth to delight in God's perfect glory and peace and his pleasures forevermore. Our Lord is watching the clock. He's looking forward to that day. We can too, while we faithfully and joyfully live out the life he's given us here on this earth to his praise and glory, amen?